We're going to take our Bibles this morning. If you would grab a Bible there at home, and if you would turn to Matthew chapter 15. This morning our text is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Remind you as we read it this morning that this is the holy and errant word of God, that things are changing in our world and have this past week, that God's word doesn't change, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that His promises are unchanging. This is His eternal word. Let's pray before we read it this morning. Father, we do pray that you would take this holy living word and that you would minister to our souls and our hearts, that you would quiet them even now before you. We pray that we would find that as we're in your presence this morning, we know that we are with you and you are with us. And amidst all of the anxieties and fears and cares and loneliness of this week that many have experienced, that you abide with us. And we have a true reminder of that this morning as we open your word. Would you minister to our souls and so your eternal truths upon our hearts. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, this is the holy and errant word of God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to, said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat 
with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, I wasn't feeling the best. Uh, wasn't anything serious, uh, but just out of precaution, we thought I should probably stay home. And so I was sitting where many of you are at this morning. I was probably a little better dressed than some of you are dressed this morning. Uh, you do know that uh, if you're watching this on your computer or TV and it has a camera, that we can see your image on the monitor up there, right? Just, just kidding. Don't freak out. Uh, but I was in a similar position to you, uh, sitting on my couch. Maybe you're sitting at the kitchen table this morning. And it was wonderful. Pastor Kevin did a wonderful job preaching last week. And Pat did a wonderful prayer, led us wonderfully in prayer. Sean and the worship team led us wonderfully in music. There was one part, though, that I thought struggled a little bit last week. Uh, and that was the singing, at least in my home. Uh, we sang at the top of our lungs, uh, but it was not the prettiest of singing. There were a lot of laughs. Uh, there probably should have been tears, uh, but we continued to sing at the top of our lungs, and I want to encourage you to do the same as you're worshiping together uh, at home or with friends uh, or roommates, is keep singing at the top of your lungs. Uh, we had an elder meeting this week, a session meeting. We had 18 or so men on a, on a video chat room, and it's my tradition that at the end of a session meeting, I close the meeting by saying, all those in favor of adjourning, please stand. And so we all stand, and then we close with singing the doxology. And so this week, I thought, well, we'll just try it virtually. And I said, why don't we close the meeting by standing, and we'll sing and so we began singing the doxology. The problem was virtually there's a lag. And so it was absolutely horrific. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, Tim McCormick, one of our elders, emailed me afterwards because someone was kind enough to video record us singing and uh, keep it and then pass it out to all of us. And Tim said this to me. He said, Jason, I think you should put this out on Twitter and use as clickbait this title. COVID-19 threatens harmony among church leaders. Uh, the problem is, is that would have been the wrong diagnosis. It wasn't COVID-19's fault. Uh, we just aren't as good of singers as we think we are, and virtually it showed itself. It was the wrong diagnosis. We had the wrong perceived problem, I think, if we put that out online. What we have in our text this morning a kind of perceived wrong problem. I want to look at this text this morning in four ways. The first is the perceived problem. Second, the pertinent problem. Third, the real problem. And then fourth, the only solution. So first, I want to look at the perceived problem in this text. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and scribes had come from Jerusalem down to the countryside where Jesus was at with the disciples and with this crowd. Now, this is quite a moment. It speaks of authority. You have these holy polloi Pharisees and scribes, not just any religious elites, but these are the holy city centrified 
highest of the religious elite coming down from Jerusalem, condescending to mix with the rural country folk. And they've come with a purpose. They perceive a problem. And they're not shy with their accusation. They're very clear in verse 2. If you look there, they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. It's not really a question. It's rather like one of those questions that happen early in marriage where a newly married husband and wife are together and the newly married wife looks at her husband and she says to him, why are you setting the table like that? We don't set the table like that in my family. Or why do you fold the t-shirts like that? We didn't fold the t-shirts like that in my family growing up. It's not so much a question, and the newly minted husband should know that this is no longer how he's going to set the table, and this is no longer how he's going to fold the clothes. That They're not asking a question. They're doing a gentle rebuke of Jesus and his disciples. Your disciples are breaking the tradition, Jesus. They're not washing their hands before they eat. Now, don't start posting on social media that your pastor flipped to the text this week and said that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands, as everybody else is trying to do very relevant sermons this morning for what's happened this past week. I think Jesus would very clearly tell us to wash our hands. He would be concerned about that. That is not his concern in this text. It's not personal hygiene, that the Pharisees have a good view of personal hygiene, and Jesus and his disciples don't. Rather, what the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned about is ceremonial uncleanness. But notice that they're not simply concerned with Jesus' actions. They say, quote, your disciples aren't doing this. They're concerned with Jesus' discipleship. They're concerned that Jesus is an influencer, and Jesus is influencing his disciples not to obey the traditions of the elders. Jesus, you're influencing wrongly. You're a corrupting influence. He's leading his people away from their form of religion. You're not following the tradition of the elders. What is the tradition that the Pharisees are referring to? It is that oral tradition that was passed down among the rabbis, the tradition of teaching and how to interpret the Scriptures, what later would be codified as the Mishnah. And if you were to take the Mishnah today and you were to turn to it and the English version of it, you would see that there is a long chapter just about washing hands. In the English, it's close to 4,000 words about how you are to properly wash your hands. You thought your mom or your spouse was being dogmatic these days. They have nothing on the Pharisees and the scribes and their teaching and how thoroughly you were to wash your hands so that you could be ceremonial clean. 
The Pharisees knew that this was a tradition. They knew that this wasn't the teaching of the Scriptures. They have no delusion that this washing was necessary according to the law of God. Their very question shows that. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Now, they didn't just come up with this out of thin air, though, either. They were taking what they thought were the principles of Scripture, and they were applying the most rigorous standards possible from what they saw as those principles of Scripture. The law said that a priest, in entering the tabernacle, needed to wash his hands before he went into the tabernacle. And so, if a priest had to wash his hands before he went into the tabernacle and offered prayer to God, and that was good and that was right, then surely it should be and could be and must be expanded to all Jews that before they eat, because they're going to pray before they eat, that they should wash their hands and be clean, be ceremonially clean. It was a tradition it's a tradition that was meant to honor God. It was a tradition that was meant to encourage holiness. And listen, traditions can be very helpful. In fact, they're almost always helpful at some point or they wouldn't have become traditions. But here's the problem. Traditions too often rise to the level of more than a tradition in our minds and our hearts. They become law. The Pharisees, they perceive a problem, but they perceive the wrong problem. And that leads to our second point, the pertinent problem. Jesus is quite clear. He says in verse 3, if you'll look, he says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? The pertinent problem is their legalism. He doesn't discount the tradition. He, he discounts tradition that leads to breaking the revealed commandments of God. And this is what they're doing. You saw this week, in light of all the lockdowns, that the Pope made a statement. He announced that people could confess their sins directly to God and not have to go before a priest. Well, that's a good pronouncement because that's true. It's always been the case. David's no priest, and yet he confesses his sins directly to God after he's convicted of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Can there be a benefit to confessing our sins to other people? Of course, absolutely. James says this. He says, is anyone among you sick? And then he gives this instruction. Well... Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The problem is when tradition displaces or when tradition distances the commands of God, the very law of God. You have to. You must. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. But this is not something that just the Jews or just the Roman Catholics struggle with. It's something that we do. 
It starts off well. It starts off with zeal. And it's good zeal. It's it's zeal for holiness. It's zeal for godliness. And that zeal begins to inform our conduct, our practice. So we find something that works for us. That's helpful for our pursuit of godliness. That's helpful for our pursuit of holiness. And so we begin to shape our lives with it, and we begin to practice it. But then that usefulness turns to something that we now consider necessary. And that's the problem. If I'm doing it, I'm good to go. If I'm doing it, I'm faithful. If I'm not doing it, then I'm unfaithful. If I'm not doing it, then I'm not holy before God. And more often than not, as we see with the Pharisees here, if others are not doing it, then they're not faithful before God. What's interesting about our traditions is that we often have trouble seeing the danger of our own traditions. We don't have problems seeing the danger in other people's traditions, but we struggle to see the danger in our own traditions, and we've become blind, blind guides, unable to see what we have taken and unhelpfully made authoritative and given it some kind of position of authority in our lives, something that is to be a matter of conscience. And then it becomes legalism. And that's the pertinent problem here. Jesus gives us an example of their traditions having run amok. He says that it's like a man who has promised everything to God. The, the word that they would use was korban. They would scream it and say, all of this, everything that I have, it's dedicated to God. And a young man may do it with the right reasons. He may say, well, I want to give everything that I have to God. When I die, everything that I have is going to become His. But there were also those that were doing it for the wrong reasons. Because you could say, everything that I have is korban. Everything that I have is given to God. And so if anyone came to you and asked you to give them something, you could say, I can't give it to you because I promised it to God so that when I die, it goes to God. But you see, here's the catch. If you promise to God, you get to use it as long as you're alive. You promised it to God upon death. And so you had Jews, as Jesus is saying here, that had promised all of their material possessions to God. And yet, their mother or their father falls on hard times. Their mother or father needs something, but the, their son says, I can't help you. It's all God's, even while they continue to use it. And Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition." You're now dishonoring the law of God, the commandment of God, that you should honor your mother and your father, the fifth commandment. When he says in verse 6, you make void the word of God. You erected a tradition, a way of living, a list of man-made commitments, which you believed were honoring to the Scriptures, but all the while you were forsaking the Scriptures themselves. Unclean hands. Pharisees, you're missing the reason. You're missing the reason the priest was to have clean hands. 
The Pharisees were so concerned with becoming unclean by things outside of them, but they missed that the uncleanliness is inside of them. The washing of hands was but meant to signify the need to be clean before God, to be clean inwardly. It was an outward sign of the need to be clean inwardly. As Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And so they're teaching. It's, it's doing damage to people. It's wrecking havoc. For all their conservativeness, they are actually proving to be quite liberal theologically. They are the ones that are making changes to the standards of God, and they are proving to be hypocrites in their actions, as Jesus says here. And he compares them to a, a plant that needs to be uprooted, taken up by its roots, and cast out of the garden because it's, it's corrupting all the other plants that are in the garden that the Father put in the garden. It's that harmful. Now, this would have been absolutely shocking to the disciples. I think probably from their youngest of years, they would have considered the Pharisees and the scribes the gold standard of righteousness and holiness among the people of God. Legalists in their own community often are the standard of righteousness or holiness in their community. The disciples ask with real sincerity in verse 12, he says, they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Then let them take offense, Jesus is saying. Because their teaching was striking at the very center of the gospel and it was damaging the people of God. They thought that somehow by their tradition they could please God, but there was something that they were missing. And that gets to our third point, the real problem. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he says this. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The real problem is the heart. James Carville, uh, who was an advisor to then-candidate Bill Clinton in 1992, made famous a saying that kind of became the slogan of Clinton's campaign, where he said, it's the economy, stupid. Jesus is saying, it's the heart center. It's the heart center. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, he tells us in verse 11, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. When the disciples ask for greater clarity in verse 20, he says this, he says, For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And Jesus could have gone on. It flows from here. It's the heart sinner. John Bunyan, the famous 17th century pastor who wrote what is considered the most widely read book outside of the Bible in the history of the world, Pilgrim's Progress. 
He said that before he came to know Christ, he said he wasn't a drunkard, he wasn't an adulterer, but he had an absolutely foul mouth. And he said this, this is a direct quote from him in his autobiography, he said, I had few equals for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God. Heaven and hell were both out of sight and out of mind, and as far as saying and damning, they were least in my thoughts. They were least in his thoughts until one day he was standing outside a store, a shop, as he says, and there was a prostitute that was standing not too far away from him, and he began talking. He was talking to someone else, and the prostitute heard him speaking, and heard the way that he spoke, and she rebuked him. The prostitute rebuked him. And Bunyan says that in that moment, he fell silent, and he felt shame. And for 18 months, he carried around this burden, this his conscience being pricked by a prostitute rebuking him for his language. Why shame? Because he knew that what he spoke flowed from his heart. And how dark his heart must have been. Our mouths are a barometer of our hearts. We'll say something that we aren't proud of and we'll say, oh, that wasn't me. I was just tired. I didn't really mean it. No, it was you. And it was what you meant. Our mouths betray our hearts. Every sin that stains our person flows from the heart. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. It's the heart sinner. The Pharisees, they are missing the real issue. It wasn't outward obedience that was needed. It was inward change. It's the heart sinner. When that rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, I have obeyed all of these things. I've done everything in the law. Jesus will say to him, go and sell all of your possessions. Why? Because that's the final step to becoming a disciple of Christ? No. But because the only step to becoming a disciple of Christ is to yield our heart to Him. It's the only step. And this man's heart, the rich young ruler's heart, was far from God because it was dominated by his possessions. It's the heart sinner. When Ananias and Sapphira, when they come before the church, they're in Acts, and they've sold their property, and they're giving the proceeds of that property to the church as all the church in a, in a time of need is sharing what they have in common with one another. You remember, they kept some of it back for themselves. But they sold property. They sold property to give an abundant amount to the church, and yet God strikes them dead. Why? 
Because it's the heart sinner. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit and they were mocking the people of God. They were just doing an outward act. They weren't seeking to be engaged in worship and to honor God with all that they were. It's the heart sinner. Just the act of offering something. As David says in Psalm 51, after confessing his sin with Bathsheba, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. God's not impressed with skin-deep religion. He wants heart religion. I've been thinking a lot about this this past week. Uh, my own life, reflecting upon it in the midst of all of the social distancing, it's weird. Chip was asking me this morning while they were up here singing, uh, practicing as a worship team, he looked at me and he said, why are you smiling so big, Jason? He thought I was laughing at them. I said, no, I'm just happy to be around people. Uh, it's weird. I know for some of you introverts, you feel like this is evidence of post-millennialism and that the millennium has come and that you don't have to interact with very many people. But it's weird. And it's probably only going to grow in weirdness over the days and weeks ahead, become more difficult, especially if they tell us to shelter in place over the next weeks. And, and I've thought and I've been praying for myself, I've been praying for you, I've been praying for the church, that we would seize this opportunity. Not that viruses are opportunities, but the things that flow from this, there are opportunities. And maybe chief among them is that you and I get to examine our own hearts more closely. As all the routines and habits and traditions of life get stripped away, it just exposes our hearts more. We're going to learn a lot about ourselves over these next weeks. What's really in my heart? What do I really take joy in? What do I really find peace in? What really causes me anxiety and causes me fear? What do I trust in? What do I value? John Owen said this about times like this. He said, in every disaster, God is calling us to trust ourselves, our families, and all our enjoyments to his sovereign will and wisdom so that we may be ready to part with all things when he calls and that without any regrets. God is making wings for men's riches. He is shaking their homes. He is taking away all the visible defenses of their lives. He is proclaiming the uncertainty and instability of man's life. So the only thing that will give us rest and peace is to entrust 
everything to his sovereign will and pleasure. This is the way to mortify self and love for the world and the things that are in the world. Without this mortification, we can never trust ourselves and all that we love and have to God's sovereign will. It's the heart center. It becomes more visible during times like this. I was reading Charles Spurgeon this week who asked his congregation a question. He said, if there were no Sunday morning service at 11, how many of you would be Christians? That seems like a pretty apropos question this morning. The writer of Hebrews says we're not to forsake the weekly fellowship of the saints. We are to gather weekly as we're able. But it is tradition to gather at 11 or at 9.15. And some count their Christianity based upon the fact that they've walked through the doors of a church and that they've sat in a pew and that they put in their time and then go home. And that's what makes them a Christian. My guess is that our hearts will become more evident over these weeks. Some will drift away from the church. They will find that stopping from meeting together with the people of God, going through this time of hiatus, because it will end, that it didn't really affect their lives that much. It wasn't really much of a loss. And Many, if not most of those, won't return to the church. Others, the heart engaged, the heart stirred, the heart loving, the heart worshiping Christians will long to be back with God's people worshiping in the confines of a church before his throne together. And their hearts will find that during these weeks, one of the greatest losses, if not the greatest loss, is gathering together with God's people in worship. Why? Because it's not mere outward religion for them. It's heart religion. And this is the high point of our week. It's the high point of our lives. The psalmist cries out in such a way in Psalm 42 when he says this, he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. What is he talking about? We often treat that as some kind of private devotional text, but it's not that. The psalmist has somehow been barred from public worship. He, he can't be with God's people in worship. He says, How I would go, he says, with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs of praise. He longs and he pants and he thirsts to be in the presence of God in the midst of the people of God. It's the heart, sinner. Guard and tend your heart. Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, 
from it flow the springs of life. Finally, the only solution. The Pharisees, they thought that God's favor could some way be procured or secured by outward action, but Jesus taught something radically different. It was not the person who achieved holiness and made themselves right before God, but the sinner who humbled themselves under his grace that he made right, that God himself made right. You see, you can't wash your hands enough. You can't wash them enough. You can wash them till they're bloody and you've accomplished nothing. You have to be washed by him. It's a sinner. A sinner who has received the, the grace of God. This is the beauty of the gospel. What we could not do, he did. What we could not secure, he secured. And he pours out his grace upon the sinner. And it is that sinner who humbled by his grace with a bowed heart places their faith and trust in Christ and yields their entire person to him. That's how inward change happens, His grace. It's not the man who comes to God showing all of his good deeds like badges upon his vest. It's a sinner, destitute, laid low in the dust, humbled, kneeling before God, not just in posture but in heart. It's the heart sinner. You see what Jesus did here? The Pharisees came to Jesus with cleanliness as the heart of the discussion, and Jesus turns it around and makes the cleanliness of their hearts the discussion. It's the heart sinner. Only he can meet the real problem. It's the promise of God, a wonderful promise in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's the heart, sinner. It must be the Lord's. And we must safeguard it above all else. J.C. Ryle, just close with this, upon this passage, asked this series of questions. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to Him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of of the heart. What is genuine obedience to obey from the heart? What is saving faith to believe with the heart? Where ought Christ to dwell 
to dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. It's the heart center. May we all find our hearts humbled before our sovereign God. May we keep a close watch and keep a close guard upon them. Ah, we have wonderful opportunity in the days and weeks ahead. Would you tend to your heart? And let's pray for one another's hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that you are a God who works salvation for those who are incapable, who are unable. We thank you that you take hearts of stone and you make them hearts of flesh. And we are also thankful that you are not content with skin-deep religion, but that you want the man, you want the woman, you want the child. And we pray that we would give you our whole being. We know that this side of heaven, that our sin, our hearts will be darkened with sin here and there. There will be corners and recesses of our hearts that are not fully yielded to you. We pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would reveal those dark corners and slight moments here and there so that we are not overwhelmed, but that you would lead us down the path of righteousness. And that when we find that corner of our heart that is not yet yielded to you, that we would be quick to confess, quick to repent, and quick to know that your grace and your mercy is ours, and that we would rejoice in you, our saving God. Be with us, we pray, this week. And as we seek to minister to one another and to the world around us, thank you for being our God. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.